Hello and welcome to this, the latest in a series of classics and ancient history podcasts from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest in the second part of a two-part podcast is Alastair Blanchard, who teaches classics at the University of Sydney. We met up recently at the Blackwell's offices in Oxford to talk about his new book, Sex, Vice and Love, From Antiquity to Modernity. In part one, following the structure of his book, we talked about how our views of ancient sexuality are shaped in particular by our view of Rome, and such phenomena as the Roman orgy. In part two, we turn to Greece and Greek love. I began this part of the interview by quoting something Alistair writes in the introduction to the second half of his book. Democracy would have come into being without Athens. Philosophy would have continued without Socrates. The laws of physics have no real need of Archimedes. But modern Western homosexuality without the Greeks is impossible. I asked him to defend that provocative statement. Well, I should say that that statement was being deliberately provocative, but it's a statement that I think, you know, has has some legs. And I think, you know, I wanted to make it because I think if you do find it provocative, first of all, it's worthwhile remembering that you're probably the first generation that's ever found that provocative. That is, that, you know, up until the late 20th century, any discussion of homosexuality had to involve the Greeks in some form. They were considered absolutely crucial for any understanding or conception of homosexuality. So the fact that we think we can forget the Greeks is only a remarkably, you know, modern modern turn. But I think the other thing that I wanted to, to say in making that statement is that I wanted to again push the, the line that as in so much in regards to sexuality, it's not like there's a it's a blank state. That you know I, I make the point that you know coming out of the closet is not as it were coming out into a vacuum. That instead you come out into a world world in which there is all sorts of pre-packaged ideas or conceptions, and those conceptions often have their roots in the world of ancient Greece. And there's a long history, and I think that that's something we really need to kind of take into uh, take into account. In the second part of the book, you adopt a more chronological approach. The first part looks at Rome and is, is more thematic or generic, looking at different ways in which sexuality has been appropriated. But in the second part, when you're looking at homosexuality and Greece, you have this chronological approach. Tell, tell me what you were attempting to do there. Well, I, I wanted to, to try and capture in this book the different ways in which we relate to the ancient world. There are moments when, as it were, we in the ancient world just seem to be in dialogue. That is, that the moments where suddenly it's, you know, you see something in Pompeii or you hear a a production of a Greek tragedy and it speaks to your condition. And that immediacy in that moment is what's crucial. But there are also moments, and this is uh, what I decided to explore in the discussion of Greek love, where in fact that relationship between with antiquity is part of a tradition. That is, that it's not just that you're uh, speaking or hearing from you know something from the ancient world, but rather you're hearing something from the ancient world that has been gone through Renaissance imaginings, has been discussed by the Enlightenment, that has been part of a 19th century political project, and has come to you in the 20th century through all these stages. And so it was both this way of the immediacy which I wanted to look in the first part of the book and this notion of tradition in in the second part because these are both important modes I think for understanding our relationship with the ancient world and so I wanted to try and capture or give an example of how each of these modes might work. And this refraction of Greek love in Western culture begins with Rome, doesn't it? You describe Greek love very nicely as a stowaway coming from Greece to Rome. So to say why you described it in that way. 
Well, I think what I wanted to, to stress is that, uh, I, I mean, partly I wanted to just talk about Greek love in terms of a context of inheritances. When we talk about the things that Rome adopted or learned from Greece, we kind of focus on philosophy and we talk about mathematics and we talk about architecture and artistic styles and so forth. But we don't talk about homosexuality. So I wanted to kind of put though put homosexuality alongside those things that Rome received from Greece. And the other thing I wanted to do was talk about how that it's Rome's understanding of what constitutes Greek homosexual practice, which stylizes and almost kind of reflects and concretizes um, what is a pretty amorphous picture. So that if you look at Greek love as practiced in Greece, you know there are very different kind of models. There are very uh, different kinds of practices. There's no, no really one dominant story. What we start to see with Rome is the beginning of, as it were, one very distinct vision of homosexual practice. And that's what I wanted to do, is talk about the way in which Rome is really crucial in that story, because it's that first moment when we start to see the story being put together. So how do, how do Roman structures and Roman power relationships cope with, with, with homosexuality? Rome has its own indigenous homosexual tradition, and we can see that, for example, in plays like Plautus, for example, where uh, we see references to, to homosexuality and homosexual acts occurring. But I think what we see with the adoption of Greek homosexual practices is a way in which elements like, for example, status difference between lovers about the way in which sexual practice could be a marker of identity and of about learning all these things start to enter into the enter into the mix so if you are a roman and want to indicate for example that you are a uh, lover of greece that you're sophisticated cosmopolitan well, there are a number of ways you can do it you can for example put on greek games you can write you know philosophical texts in greek you can also take a male lover. And I think that those are, you know, we need to sort of see it as part of that kind of process. Now, to, to jump forward um, to millennia, one of the interesting things about the book was the reminder it gives that Oscar Wilde wasn't only a playwright and a wit and a homosexual, but he was also a classicist. Yes, so uh, when Wilde is introduced by his defence counsel at trial, uh, he's not introduced as a, a producer of plays or a dandy or an aesthete or an essayist. I mean, what they stress is, in fact, his classical scholarship, his gold medal in Greek, which he got at Trinity College Dublin, You know, the top first, and in, in fact, a double first, uh, in mods and greats at Oxford. This is, in fact, how Wilde is introduced to the jury. It's Wilde the classicist. Uh, he was, for example, on the first council of the Society for the Promotion of Hellenic Studies, the preeminent scientific and scholarly body that uh, discusses Greek matters even even today. You know, it's first council, and Oscar Wilde is on is on the council. So, so he, it's his classical knowledge, which, in fact, we, we tend to forget, but it's so important to him. I mean, the famous love that dare not speak his name speech is you know it's suffused with platonic philosophy he cites plato in fact it's his plato's formulation from the symposium the phaedrus which gets into the the text of what is perhaps arguably the, the greatest work of uh, homosexual apologia of the 19th century and and, and it's classical and it's wild you know projecting uh, his own classical learning into the courtroom for to argue for uh, political change
But, but but of course, it's a, a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because the classical is is non-Christian and you know associated with practices which Victorian morality would would find abhorrent. Yes, and, and Greece has this sort of double-edged aspect for the Victorians. Uh, I mean, the Victorians loved Greek sculpture. They praised you know the Greek arts and talker uh, in hushed tones about Greek philosophy. But then there's always the sort of elephant in the room, which is Greek pederasty. And, and what do you do with it? And, you know, sometimes you, know, you deny it. Sometimes you try and pretend that it was just some strange form of education. But it's something that you keep coming back to. And, it's, uh, and of course, there are people who won't let you forget it. I mean, that's the other, I, I think, really important element in this story is the, the first generation of homosexual apologists who are using Hellenism to make a political case. They say, well, look, if you're going to you know, celebrate Hellenism, if you're going to regard the Greeks as the founders of, of Western culture, then there's something you're also going to have to face up uh, to. And, and that's, you know, the use of, of, of Greece uh, in, in its political form that I find really interesting. Do you think sexuality is the area of human life where our view of the classical world is most remote from from the reality where it really has sort of slipped its moorings and has gone off into its own little fantasy realm I think it would have to be one of the contenders again you know uh, as I said earlier one just keeps going back to these myths that we tell ourselves uh, about the the Greeks and Romans I mean how can we have got it so wrong about the orgy I mean how can we have got it so wrong about what Roman matrons get up to I mean this is this is completely bizarre and and why do why do we also uh, be so rational about certain aspects and so distrusting of our sources yet the moment sex comes into play we kind of roll over, abandon our critical faculties uh, and become gullible in ways that we just would never be about anything else. And uh, I think really there must be something about sexuality that that catches us off guard or is something that we're not prepared to to engage with in the, with the kind of critical seriousness that um, that we do in, in other areas. I mean, that, that takes me to my last question, really, which is, researching this project, did you speculate on what it is about our, our human psyche that, that finds so much sort of nourishment for our fantasies in in the classical world, almost as something that we sort of need to have? I mean, you, you talk about the, the limits of the, the study not, not looking at non-western appropriations of of the classical past but but did you did you sort of think about what it what it is about it that has been so attractive to the western imagination for so long i I think the thing about sex that makes sex so important and so interesting to us is that it combines things such as the body love pleasure, the, the really crucial things that make us human and that we regard as the you know, absolutely important aspects of our lives. And I think that that's the, the issue really that makes sex so, so important is it's the, the bit where everything comes together. Uh, and, and that's why I think you know, sex is so important and also perhaps so dangerous and also the place where we tend to get lost. Alistair Blanchard. Sex, Vice and Love from Antiquity to Modernity, is available now in hardback. There are other podcasts available in this series. Just go to the Blackwell Classics microsite, which is accessible from the home page, blackwell.co.uk. There you'll also find lots of information on new and forthcoming titles in the field, as well as an extensive browsable backlist. 
I hope you'll join me again soon for another Blackwell Classics podcast. In the next programme, my guest will be Paul Krivacek, and we'll be talking about his new book, Babylon. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.